Hey, welcome back to the program. It is Holy Week, and we are going to get ready for Easter. We are going to dive in today to some, well, I don't know, one of the most important topics I think I could ever discuss regarding the spiritual life and the way it's being attacked and undermined by the world today. Whoa, that is pretty big stuff, what I just proposed. But in order to understand that, we got to pray first. And then I'm going to tee up everything by mentioning a couple of characters in the scriptures on Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, as well as on Mass yesterday. But in order to do that, well, we better pray. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, we love you, thank you, and praise you for the gift of Holy Week. And Lord, we pray that we would live it well. We pray for the grace of praying well, of preparing well, of living for you. Lord, we are so quick to choose comfort, to choose what is easy, and it's hard to choose to sacrifice, Lord. But give us the grace to do that. Give us the grace to do that well. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so to tee up everything that I'm headed towards, it's an insight that I gained from that book by the then Cardinal Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, on the Divine Project. And in it, he connects three themes, the, the theme of sacrament, the theme of encounter, and the theme of receptivity. There you go. And I know that I just proposed something, that this is a fundamental theme that is under attack today. And if we can gain insight into it, it might just change our lives and change, frankly, the way we live our lives. So that's where we're headed. And we'll get there. We'll get there. But before we get there, I'm going to talk about these three championship games that happened last night. You probably watched, well, maybe you did if you're at all involved in sports and basketball. The University of Connecticut Huskies beat the San Diego State uh, Hawks, I think it is. I don't even know. <laughs> they had a red uniform. And boy, they, it was a scrappy game. It was a battling of a game. It was these two warrior teams battling it out. And it was really something. It was a powerful game. And UConn got out to a lead. And those San Diego State guys just kept battling back, battling back, but could not ever end up getting there. And at the end of the game, it was it was really fitting when you know they won the game and and they were congratulating each other as they went through the line. You know the San Diego State guys congratulating the UConn Huskies. Um, it was like you know two teams that had climbed to the top of the mountain and there they battled and uh, the Huskies won and and they deserved to win. They did. They deserved to win. They had been dominant throughout the tournament and sure enough, came away with the victory. It was fitting. It was a fitting victory for them. So congratulations to them. There was a, a women's game that featured Iowa uh, State and, um, uh, was it Iowa State or Iowa? Iowa versus um, LSU, Louisiana State um, University. And that was on Sunday. And talk about a contrast of the two games. But it was a terrible, terrible display in, in so many ways. It was a terrible display of coaching, the antics. It was a terrible display of refereeing. Like, I, I, I tuned in, and when I tuned in in the second half, it, there was already some chatter going on about it on the commentators trying to, like, how do we defend what we're watching on the court here, the way these refs are calling the game? And as, as I'm watching it with my kids, we're all like, what? What was that call? What, what, wait a minute. What just happened there? <laughs> just like, I don't get that. And it just, it was, it got worse and worse and worse. And it, and it left everybody befuddled. And it was like, why, what did these refs have against the Iowa team? But and we weren't the only ones, I guess. You know, there were some longtime folks involved in officiating at the at the highest levels and uh, college sports and professionals who were watching this thinking, okay, it seems like it's five against seven. Oh, no, five against eight. It's the five Iowa players against the five LSU players plus the referees. And it's like it's really hard to beat 
another team, when you have the, the referees really overwhelmingly hedging towards the supporting the LSU team and winning. It was terrible. But really what was worst of all were the attitudes on on the on the part of the LSU players. Just one one player in particular, I don't even know her name. Um I had not heard of her before, but boy, she just showed really me. It was she was a witness a witness to what was wrong, what is wrong with uh, basketball, girls' basketball at the high school level and beyond. AAU girls' basketball at the high school level just becomes so harshly masculine, rough. Uh, it's just it, it, terrible. And, and college, it gets worse, and then pros uh, in the same way. I, I talked with, uh, and the reason why this is a, a pressing issue to me, um, it was something that I pondered, is I have a daughter who's in eighth grade, and she's a really good basketball player. And we'd love for her to play basketball in, in uh, high school, and, and you know where, where could she go with this? And so I, I talked to this uh, woman who played in the WNBA and was a recruiter at the Division I college level for women's basketball teams, and a devout Catholic. And I, and I said to her, I said, where would you send your daughter to go play basketball at a Division I level? And I said, look, I'm not saying my daughter could play at the Division I level, but I just said, is there a Division I team where you would be excited to have your daughter go play because she's playing at a place where she would be able to grow in her Catholic faith? And the answer was nowhere. Nowhere. I can't think of one. I can't think of one NCAA program where... She would not be immersed in a culture that is dominated by same-sex attraction and that lifestyle, the, uh, the lesbian lifestyle uh, or transgender-impacted lifestyle is promoted, supported, advanced, and celebrated. And it would be diving into a toxic swamp. And I'm thinking, why would I want my daughter to be involved in that? in what amounts to a sin that cries to heaven for vengeance. Did you? I didn't make up that category. It's actually in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church didn't make that up either. It's part of the spiritual tradition, going all the way back to the Scriptures, that there are certain sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. Certain sins that, that are so broken and lead to such darkness and such spiritual bondage that they cry out to heaven to say, Lord, do not, re- do not hold back. Do not hold back, but Lord, step in. Step in and stop this, Lord. And one of those sins is the sin of expressing same-sex sexual activity. That that's a sin that cries to heaven for vengeance. And we live in a time, we live in a time where that is not only legal, but Pretty much any movie or new TV series that you're going to watch that is on the mainstreaming platforms is going to have its very sympathetic character involved in a same-sex sexual relationship. And it's, it's promoted and, and expressed and celebrated as what's normal and, and good and, and no, uh, noble and virtuous and, and all of these other things. And... My brothers and sisters, if you are a Catholic Christian and you want to foster in your kids a Catholic Christian way of seeing the world, that is not it. A Catholic way of seeing the world as it was revealed by God in Jesus Christ and carried forward in the Catholic Church down through 20 centuries is a very fundamental belief that God made us male and female and the nature of things, the very nature of being a man and a woman is it's biological, it's genetic, and it's fundamentally good. It's good that there is a man, a male, and a female, a, a woman, and that marriage involves the coming together of a male and a female, a man and a woman. That's what marriage is, and that's what will give rise to life and family. And it, it, we feel so hesitant to stand up and say, this is what is true and good and beautiful about 
a union of love in a relationship that ought to be supported, protected, and defended in law as marriage. And so um, it's, it's one of those fundamental things that we Catholics for too long have watched our leaders remain too silent, become too compromised, and um, watch the culture float towards a darkness, a depravity, and have said nothing. Well, I shouldn't say said nothing, said far too little, far too quietly, and have made their first word to be a word of tolerance. We ought to tolerate um, those who are in a situation where they experience a disordered desire. It's objectively disordered. It's called a concupiscent desire. That means that there's no way to express that desire in a way that will bring life. Did you hear that? There's no way to express the sexual desire that is in a same-sex direction. There's no way to express it in a way that will bring life. It's a concupiscent desire. It's a desire that hedges towards sin. And if it comes to expression, it is sinful. It is something that will... Um, diminish or break in or weaken the, the human spirit and lead them into a spiritual confusion and darkness. And so this is just what the church teaches. And so there is a, a way in which those who experience same-sex attraction, if it's unwanted and it wasn't something that they, they chose, it, is, it can be a big burden, it can be a cross, and there ought to be compassion and tolerance for those who are in that circumstance. But that's different than promoting, celebrating, and supporting it. That's different than um, saying we ought not to stand and proclaim what is true, good, and beautiful about human relationships because it was the truth that was given to us by Jesus Christ and the church. So, boy, that's an awful lot connected to a basketball game, but that's the reality of girls' basketball at the college level and at the professional level. And so just beware, just beware if you have daughters as they head towards high school and they play beyond a, just say, uh, a recreational level, the, the more serious committed players are entering into a world that makes it more and more difficult for a woman to be a woman, to be fully alive as a woman. And so just that's something that I know I've become very aware of, and, and so it has impacted the way that Carrie and I relate to um, the, the reality of basketball as it relates to our daughters. Okay, so that was the second game. So I mentioned there were three games, right? There was the, the men's tournament final, and again, just great battle. Coaches were dignified. The players shook hands at the end. Women's game, just very sad. It was, it was a sad travesty. Not, not who won and who lost, but it was how the game unfolded. It was really sad. Okay, I mentioned there was a third game, and the third game was the Mountain Christian League. Yay! <laughs> There's actually a league that is made up of schools that are rooted in faith, and um, these are schools that are mostly in eastern Washington and in northern Idaho. There, there's like one or two in like southern Washington and central, south central Washington and, and one up uh, in Sandpoint, and so really northern Idaho. Um, but these teams are uh, a lot of teams that play in, uh, that are classical, uh, classical Christian schools and a couple of Catholic schools as well, but classical Christian schools and a couple of Catholic schools. And, and they have games that uh, are at the high school level and then the 7th and 8th grade junior high level. So I'm coaching the 7th and 8th grade girls team, basketball team for the Oaks. And let me tell you, what a beautiful spirit. Um, all the way through the tournament that was this weekend, all the way to the championship game, and, and my team, uh, that I had my daughter on and a bunch of other young ladies, uh, you know, they did well. We ended up winning. And it was, it was a beautiful game. It was a beautiful game. Um, you know, both teams battled, and when the outcome became obvious, we substituted in players that uh, maybe wouldn't have had a chance to play in normal leagues and normal games, and we had um, a chance for everyone to get out there and have fun on the court. And what was really distinctive was something that you just don't see in other leagues, and it's this. When 
uh, someone gets fouled, a player goes to the foul line, shoots a foul shot. And when she, when she makes the shot or misses the shot, her teammates will normally come and just give her a little like a uh, high five, just give her a little, a little slap, little high five. Well, what happens in this league is that the girls from both teams will either congratulate her for making the shot or say, nice try. And in saying nice try, we'll say, you know what? It's, uh, good, good try, good try. And then I want, I want you to hear that again. You, what you see on the court, what you see on the court, a girls from both teams going to the girl at the foul line after a shot made or missed and giving her encouragement or congratulations. Now, this is during the game. And this is the opponent doing that. And this happens every time. No matter who's at the foul line, if you're the one that was followed them, even if you think you weren't the right one, they still do that encouraging, come on, you got this, or congratulations, nice shot. Do you know how beautiful that is? Do you know how wonderful that is? How, what a beautiful testimony that is to say, yeah, your competitor's on the court, but your sister's in Christ as well, and treat each other like sisters in Christ. That's how you want to live. That's how you want to play. That's how we want to be. And so, not as a lot at stake, no cameras, no TV, but that beautiful girls game with the 7th and 8th grade teams was so much more beautiful and glorious and respectful and noble than the NCAA championship game for women's college basketball. It was so much more life-giving for those who attended and for those who watched. And I love that. I love that. So thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the gift of being able to have opportunities for young ladies to be young ladies on a basketball court and to be able to celebrate each other and not, uh, not attempt to put each other down and, and go after each other in ways that are just disrespectful and lacking in any class whatsoever. That's just, again, very sad. But I'm very grateful for the gift of the Mountain Christian League and the way that they run a tournament. In fact, when they give out awards, the award that they highlight the most, the award they give the most attention to, the award that they celebrate the last is not some MVP, it's not league champion, it's the Christian Character Award. Teams vote on which team most beautifully displays Christian character on the court. And they vote, and that's the final award that's given out. They save the best for last, the highest for last, and they emphasize it out loud. This is our highest award. It's the award that goes to the team who displays Christian character in the greatest way. Isn't that powerful? I just love that. All right, I'm up against a break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about witnesses and testimonies that you see in the Gospels, in the Gospels. Because what I just shared with you about basketball, it's relevant. It's relevant to our lives, and it makes us stop and say, how are we showing up? What are we doing to engage in battle with people who are not our enemies? They may be competitors, but they are not our enemies. How do we do that well today? We'll find out in just a minute. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. It is great to be with you today. It's a, such a blessing to be able to come to you during Holy Week, and it's such a special week. Uh, by the way, it's also a time when, if you pay attention at all to what's going on in the real estate market, just a quick word. There are a lot of folks out there who are now actively looking to buy homes, and the number of homes that are coming on the market is also growing by quite a bit. And so if you have thought about and are discerning what ought, what ought we to do for our family, for ourselves at this age and stage in our lives, it matters. 
I just mentioned what you know my kids are experiencing here, and we moved to the you know Spokane area about four years ago, and living in this Spokane to Coeur d'Alene corridor, it's so fundamentally different. What our kids are experiencing about life is so fundamentally more life giving and less toxic than what my kids were experiencing in the greater Seattle area. And that's both sports teams and that's Catholic schools and that's the wider neighborhoods. And so I know sometimes I hear from families saying it, it can't be that much better, Tom. It just can't be that much better for for your kids than it is over here. The grass is just greener. You're just talking. You're a good salesman. No. <laughs> you know what's a good salesman? Is the witness and testimony of experiencing it for yourself. So you want to come over and you want to experience it? Stay with us. We will host you if we need to. We'll find a place for you. If you can't afford to um, uh, stay in a place or uh, you need to stay a night, we have put up families for four years that, that have come by and visited and said, we just want to experience what you're talking about. Um, and, and the only reason I would do that is that it's a sense of mission. Carrie and I have this sense of mission to help families who are striving to foster faith in their kids in an extremely challenging environment. Now, I know a number of families, that's not their discernment to, that they are to move, that they're supposed to stay where they are, stay rooted, and they are to live intentionally their faith and be a witness in that environment. If that's you, I pray for you. If, however, you have a sense of saying, you know what, I'm not sure this is what we ought to do, I see our kids' faith diminishing, disintegrating, and I feel like, wait a minute, what's going on? There's something better. There's something healthier. You don't have to settle for that. And it might mean becoming much more intentional in how you live your lives there with other families, making big sacrifices and commitments to come together and find places for your kids to be able to fellowship and be involved in life together. For some of you, it might mean uprooting and moving. You just, you got to... The slaughter uh, of the innocents is happening, and you've got to find your Egypt. Find your Egypt, whatever that is. If I can be of help, I would love to do that. You can go to drtomcurran.com. That's my real estate website, drtomcurran.com, and I offer free opportunities to talk with me over Zoom. doesn't cost you a thing. It's just simply to listen to your story, to pray with you, and help you discern either how do we stay put well, how do we figure out, how do we navigate the challenges that our kids are going through or we're going through right now? Or if we are to move, what does that look like? When would we do that? How would we do that? How do we prepare for it? How do we make a move? I would love to support you in that mission. That is my mission. That is my mission. And so you can go to drtomcurran.com. It's just drtomcurran.com. And there's a contact Tom. And uh, we'll set up a free time to talk over Zoom and um, I hope that would be a blessing to you. That's me, just, just giving a testimony. So all right, let's come back around to the concept of testimony, and let's go to the, uh, the celebration of, of Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday. So Palm Sunday um, happened, as you know, just two days ago. Did you notice, did you hear it in the homily, or did you notice that when the gospel was read, not not, at the, not before Mass, when the blessing of the palms happened, but when, um, when, when the gospel was read, it mentions that Jesus, actually it might have been in the gospel before, uh, at, the, uh, at the blessing of the palms, um, Jesus sends some disciples into Jerusalem, and he says, go to a certain man that you'll find, and tell him the master intends to celebrate the Passover in your home. Do you know what they don't mention? The fellow's name. Did you, did you notice that? It doesn't mention the fellow's name. But it's a definite fellow. Go to this certain man. Go to this. It's not go wander around and you might feel a prompting and or someone might say, celebrate the Passover here, there's a vacancy. No. Jesus knew who he had in mind. He, he knew whom he had chosen to celebrate the Passover. There was a specific guy who had a specific relationship with Jesus known to Jesus, and Jesus said, I've chosen him. 
He has been given this space and this place to welcome us. He's a steward of that space. He's a steward of that place. He's a steward of the stuff he has, so much so that he's available to receive me and my apostles to come and celebrate the Passover there. Okay, by the way, this is the theme that I'm getting to later on in the program. This man, this certain man, is going to have an encounter with Jesus that is spectacular and extraordinary. He is the owner of the space where the Last Supper is happening. Do you get that? Do you, it, this is like stunning. He, he was chosen by God to be the one to host the Last Supper. And do you know what we don't know? His name. We don't know his name. You know, what's, what's his name? We don't know. And you got to imagine that, you know, the apostles who are responsible for so many writings in the New Testament, including the Gospels, they knew this guy's name. They knew. They were there. Matthew was there. Mark was there. John was there. And you know what? They don't mention his name. Probably because he said, don't, don't, don't put me in like that. I, I, I don't want my name included. Let me stay unknown. I just want to play my part, and I just want to keep it hidden. Please just don't mention my name. And that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And you can imagine Peter who also gets a mention in the, in the gospel account, I will never deny you, Jesus. I will die rather than deny you, Jesus. He probably said, put my name in there. Mark, put it in there. I, I want that whole account. I want it out in the open, what I did, that I failed the Lord, that I denied him three times. I want that known. There's a, a testimony involved in that. And then just one more, just one more, the idea of testimony. And this comes from Monday's reading. If you went to Mass yesterday, it was the story of the anointing of Jesus by the woman who broke the jar and poured the oil on his head. And remember, Judah says, why did she waste all that money? And he it was, it mentions how he was stealing money from, the, from the, the, um, the, the, the money that the apostles kept, the money bag. Um, but what is, um, what is striking about that story in particular is the mention of Lazarus. If you went to Mass, do you remember what it said about Lazarus in that story? It said that, because he was in Bethany when it happens, he's having this meal at um, Lazarus's house, um, that the Pharisees were looking for an opportunity to kill Lazarus. <laughs> I'm like, give the guy a break. The guy was sick, so sick that he died. He spent four days in the tomb until Jesus shows up, roll away the stone, raises Lazarus from the dead. He is back from the dead. And now he has a bunch of religious leaders trying to kill him. And why are they trying to kill him? Is it because he's preaching? No, doesn't mention that he's preaching. Is it because he's performing miracles? No. There's no mention of any miracles that Lazarus is performing. Is it because he has started a new ministry, a new outreach? Nope, no mention of that either. What is mentioned is that many Jewish people were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. Because of Lazarus what? Well, because of his existence, 
<laughs> because he is alive, because he's just there, because he's not dead, because he came back from the dead. He's not performing signs and wonders. He is a sign and a wonder. His very existence is a display of what happens when someone allows Jesus to take an initiative, to roll away the stone that is blocking them in life, calling them out from darkness and death, literally, and unbinding them and setting them free by his word of power. He is open to that encounter with Jesus, and that encounter with Jesus makes him a new being, makes him alive, the one who is dead. And you know what? That radiates. That shows up. That shines forth. Just having that encounter with Jesus leaves a demonstrable, glorifying, radiant effect on Lazarus's life. Oh, by the way, this is totally relevant to our lives too. How? I'll tell you in a minute. Hey, welcome back to the program. If you're enjoying this program, please go to MyCatholicFaith.org, MyCatholicFaith.org, where you can sign up for the Dr. Tom Curran podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also get it on Spotify. And um, But the easiest way is probably to just go to MyCatholicFaith.org, because you can also get access to free downloadable resources. If you don't want to have to go there, just sign up for my free email newsletter that goes out on a weekly basis and sends you all of the interviews that I'm doing on a weekly basis in a video format on the social media platforms of YouTube and Facebook, as well as other free resources and radio programs that I'm doing, and it gives you information about other upcoming topics and talks that I have. So you can do all of that by going to mycatholicfaith.org, and there, just click on whatever you like. And again, a whole bunch of free resources for you as well. Okay, so what have we learned about Sunday's certain man who owned the upper room where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper? And what do we learn about Lazarus, who um, is attempting to be killed by the Pharisees? What we learned is this, is that Jesus, he knows you. Well, he knew them. He knew their situation. He knew what they had. He knew what situation they were in. In Lazarus's case, he was dead, sick, dying, dead in the tomb. And Jesus takes the initiative to break in, break open, and come in and say, I will to be with you. I will to take action in your regard. I will to come close to you. I, I will. I mean, I am determined. I have a will. I have a uh, intention to draw near to you in a way that will fundamentally transform your life. Now, that concept, that concept is called encounter. And the uh, meeting between Jesus and that person has another theological concept. It's called event. Okay, so when you read the writings of Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, or Pope John Paul II, you will often come into contact with that language of encounter and event. And the way that it plays itself out in simplest terms is that Jesus intends that you, he wills that you, would have an encounter with him. An encounter with him that will become an event. It'll be a breaking in, a breaking open, a coming close in a way that will empty you out, fill you to overflowing, and transform your life. That's what he wills for every human being. That's what he wills for you, for me. That's what he wills for Carrie. That's what he wills for my marriage. Jesus wills to come close to my marriage to Carrie for 28 years, but you know what? He's not done. He's not done doing something new. The newness is a new event, a new breaking in, breaking open. An encounter, an encounter means what? That he's going to somehow say, I, I see where you're at. I know what you, I know what's happening in your life. I'm going to break open. I'm going to empty out. I'm going to fill you to overflowing. And it's going to change you. It's going to transform your life. It's going to transform you. 
And that's what he wills for you and for me. That's what he wills for each one of us. He wills for for our children. An encounter with Christ. Pray for that. Pray for that. Pray for your kids to be that certain man, to be that Lazarus, to have that transformative encounter, that event, that breakthrough. That's why we take our kids to adoration. That's why we teach our kids to uh, to be quiet. That's why we we pray rosary. That's why we have family prayer. That's why we send our kids to the schools we send them to. To we send them to the churches they go to. Why would they have them involved in the events that they do? Is it's all about getting our kids set, getting our kids ready. Okay, get ready. There's another word now. Getting our kids receptive to the divine initiative to the divine appointment, to the divine encounter with Jesus Christ. This all connects to Cardinal Ratzinger's book, published by Ignatius Press, Divine Project, where Pope Benedict, he wrote it when he was Cardinal, Cardinal Ratzinger, he delivered these, he wrote it, he didn't write it, he spoke these lectures um, without notes, crazy. Um, without, or without a written text, I should say. He maybe had notes, but he had no written text. So these were recordings that were transcribed and then edited and published. And it's just stunning. The content is stunning. Well, I'm now in the section where he brings out the idea, the concept of encounter and what it means. Now I've read uh, Cardinal Ratzinger on the word encounter and event for 20 years, 30 years. But the way he simply put it in this book was wondrous. It was glorious. And he connects it to the realm of the sacraments. And he says something that's so very important. He says that the encounter with Jesus Christ is the place where Jesus takes the initiative and comes close to us, and he acts upon us in a way that will transform us. And that happens in the sacraments. And he brings up the fact that all of the sacraments involve divine initiative, not human initiative. We don't baptize ourselves. We can't. Someone has to baptize us. We have to receive baptism. We can't confirm ourselves. We have to receive confirmation. We can't give ourselves Holy Communion. Someone has to give us Holy Communion. We can't anoint ourselves when we're sick. Someone has to anoint us when we're sick. We don't give ourselves, uh, the, the men don't ordain themselves. They are ordained when hands are laid upon them. It has imparted to them. Now, the, the, the two sacraments, confession, confession, we do take the initiative of, of accusing ourselves, but Accusing ourselves does not yield, it doesn't, it doesn't bring about, it doesn't cause forgiveness. Forgiveness, the act of reconciliation, is an act of God's merciful intervention, merciful initiative. And so we are forgiven. And in the sacrament of holy matrimony, there's a mutuality involved. There isn't one alone who causes the sacrament, but there's a mutuality there. Okay, so in the sacraments, what do we see? Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger brings it out. He says, look, sacraments are received. The encounter with the Lord is received. You can't cause an encounter with the Lord, but you can reflect on what it takes to be receptive, to receive what the Lord is doing in the sacraments. And this is when there was the heavens parted, the angels sang, the light from heaven fell, and I sang not the A word because it's still Lent, but I sang Hosanna to the King of Kings. (laughs) I sang Hosanna because of the, oh my goodness, that is so beautiful that the idea of we truly desire to encounter, to come under the influence of the Lord so that our lives are transformed, that that word, that 
sadly, certain types of conservative, like very traditional Catholics reject the notion of encounter as somehow soft or fuzzy or emotional. It has certainly a negative connotation. It's so sad. It's like, read Cardinal Ratzinger. Please stop with the negativity. Um, and instead, there's this focus on, wait a minute, the sacraments are all based on being receptive, being open to the approach. It's an Advent event. It's, it's the coming close of God. And even when, when you dig into what, you know, the, the great theolog greatest theologians and saints, like St. Saint Thomas Aquinas, when he talks about the effects of receiving Holy Communion, he says that the proper effect of receiving Holy Communion is the transformation of the receiver into Christ. But alongside that objective, this is what the Lord intends when he's coming. Okay, the Lord's taken the initiative and the encounter. He's coming and he's going to pour this transformative grace to transform you into Christ, you who receive him. He also says, what is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. What is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. Quad recipisti, recipisti, modo recipientis. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. He drags it into sacramental theology to say, it's not magic. The sacraments are not magic. They don't cause an effect automatically. It depends on the disposition of the receiver. How ready are we to receive what the Lord is waiting to give? We'll dig into this more in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. It is always a delight to be with you all. And this is Holy Week. This is, a, again, a beautiful opportunity to finish strong, strongly, finish well, right? Uh, we, uh, we, we gave up television, but we did watch the NCAA championship game last night. We settled for less a little bit. Sorry about that. But now we have a clear path to the Triduum. <laughs> now there's three days left. But let's live well these three days and then enter into the sacred Triduum, the sacred three days, beginning on Holy Thursday evening. Let's do that well. Now, before the break, I was talking about sacramental theology, St. Thomas Aquinas, where he brings out the fact that the Lord intends an encounter with us in the sacraments focused on Holy Communion, but that there's a lot at stake in not just the act of receiving Holy Communion, but our disposition. How are we disposed? And so the church in the, in the liturgy, in the sacred liturgy, in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, you have the language that speaks to the disposition, the readiness. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed, right? Lord, I am not worthy. Who is that? Right? That was the centurion who came to Jesus and said, I have a seriously sick servant back in my house. And Jesus says, I'll come to the house and, and I'll pray with him, I'll heal him. And the centurion's response was what? Lord, Lord I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. And he says, look, I'm a man of authority. I get it. I tell someone to go here, they go there. I tell someone to go there, they go there. And uh, I, I know that you have authority over what's going on in my house. I, I know that you're here. What's happening over there, you have authority over it. And I'm not worthy to have you enter under my roof. And it says that Jesus was amazed. It's one of the only times in the gospel where Jesus is amazed. And what was he amazed at? He was amazed at the expectant faith, the sense of like amazing faith, right? If you want to use a, take the word amazed, the amazing faith of the centurion. Like, I've never seen faith like this. And he says, it's done. You got it. Your, your servant's going to be healed, is healed. And he was. Um, well, realize what the church is doing by putting those words in the liturgy at that spot. The church is saying, you're coming forward to receive Holy Communion. We are giving you the language that is supposed to 
like carve a space in your heart. Those words are to be alive in you. Those words are to make room in you. Those words are to be you. Just like Lazarus, he was a witness just by being there, just showing up. He was a, he was a sign of contradiction. He was a prophetic message, just being there. He didn't have to say or do anything. Just being there was enough to have the Pharisees try to kill him. What about our being there at Mass? What about us saying the words of the liturgy? Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Just say the words and my soul shall be healed. Do we believe that? Do we have that expectant faith? Do we have that sense of generous expectancy that he is going to fill me to overflowing? He is coming to encounter me. I can't, I don't, uh, I am not someone who um, has caused this to happen. I am the amazed recipient that I've been permitted to be here. And so I will humbly come forward to receive what he is ready to give, namely grace, transforming grace that will fill me to overflowing. He will fill me to overflowing. Well, here's the thing. He's going to fill everyone to overflowing, no matter how big their faith. Did you hear what I just said? Okay, just stay with me now. Remember that phrase? from Aristotle, brought into Augustine, related to sacramental theology, what is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. What does that even mean? What that means is that the person who comes up with a little tiny cup, a little Dixie cup, a little thimble, and all of a sudden there's some water that pours in, it'll fill that thimble up and it'll overflow. It'll fill up the the little Dixie cup to overflowing. It'll fill the tall cup, the grande cup, the venti cup, the trenta cup. It'll fill up the uh, the gallon jug, it'll fill up the 50-gallon uh, bottle, 50-gallon uh, barrel. Uh, it'll fill it to overflowing. He'll fill up the swimming pool to overflowing. It'll fill the Grand Canyon to overflowing. It'll fill the entire ocean to overflowing. It'll fill the universe to overflowing. It's God who's coming. And God is bigger than all of his creation. He will fill you to overflowing no matter how big your capacity to receive. Isn't that stunning? Pay attention to that. It's the whole Christ, uh, Ratzinger makes clear. It's the whole real living Lord Jesus Christ who comes to fill us to overflowing. And no matter how big the capacity is, he will fill us to overflowing. Now, John Paul II, in his first encyclical, Redemptor Homini, says that how much grace do we receive when we receive Holy Communion? He says we receive as much as we expect, faith expectation, expectant faith, and deserve. Whoa. We receive as much as we expect and deserve. Wait a minute. How do we deserve anything? It's all a gift. Yes, it is a gift. But remember... There's that idea of being properly disposed, properly ready, right? Everyone was invited to the, to the wedding feast, and then they found someone that wasn't dressed uh, properly. What did they do? They threw them out. They didn't deserve to be there. They were offered the opportunity. They came. They received the gift. They came in to the, to the wedding feast, and then they were cast out because they were in filthy clothes. Well, let's translate that to today. You, if you grew up Catholic a long time ago, you learned you only come forward to receive Holy Communion if you are in a state of grace. That's right. You're not conscious of any mortal sin on your soul. That's why we pray the act of contrition, or we pray a form of contrition, right? The confidior. We pray a form of, I confess, and uh, Lord have mercy, and Lord I'm not worthy, as a way of acknowledging that we are uh, not f- free from all sin, that there's sin that still clings to us, but we're not conscious of any mortal sin. So we, if we are, we don't go to communion. Um, but if we come forward to communion and we are undeserving, to use, to kind of pick, to, to pick the term that John Paul II says, it's like putting a lid over the cup. Now the, the water still pours, but guess what? Nothing goes in. Nothing goes in because we receive nothing of the grace of God because we're not in a state of grace. We're not in a state of grace. In fact, in a sinful state, we are receiving the Lord unworthily, or here's the more traditional word, sacrilegious. It's a sacrilegious act to receive Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin. 
And what a terrible thing. I think that it's something that we ought to be willing to return to, which is going to Mass and not receiving Holy Communion until we go to confession. Boy, I'll tell you, when you have to sit or stand aside in the pew and then your family goes by and you don't go, that's a pretty humbling thing. It's a pretty humbling thing when my kids or me or Carrie does not go to Holy Communion because of the awareness of mortal sin. And let me tell you, it's a great motivator to say, I'm going to go find a priest and get to confession. This past Sunday, three of my kids went to Mass a half an hour early. Why? To go to confession before Mass. Two of them were able to go before Mass. So the third one did not go to communion, but stayed after Mass, waited until the priest was done, and then went to communion, and then the priest very graciously gave him Holy Communion. And so that it, what does that do? It changes that whole sense of reverence around receiving Holy Communion, which it seems to me is one of the biggest detriments to our Catholic faith today is casual, irreverent approaches to receiving Holy Communion. The casual, irreverent approach to Holy Communion is destroying the sense of being expectant and deserving to receive what the Lord is ready to give. It's diminishing and destroying the faith of, uh, of the faithful. What, is, what does St. Paul say? He says that you know, those that are coming to, receiving the body and blood of the Lord unworthily are eating and drinking uh, sickness and even death on themselves. That's why many of you are sick and dying, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. That's heavy medicine, folks. So I think, sadly, that so many of us are just, we're ungrateful because we're unconscious. That's John Paul II word, unaware, uninformed. Do you have any idea what's at stake here? Do you have any idea what's going on here? Uh, I, I remember I spoke in Edmonton or Calgary um, at a men's conference, and there was a, a hockey player that gave a testimony, and afterwards the two of us were chatting. And I didn't realize it at the time, but this guy was like a national hero because he scored some goal that like, caused them to win some like, gold medal or something like that in the Olympics. And, and we were talking about it, and, and all these people were looking at him and like, kind of trying to catch his eye. And I was just chatting with the guy. I had no idea who he was. And he said, yeah, I said, yeah, I had to kind of get this wherever I go. I'm like, wow. And afterwards, these people were like, you were talking to him. You were talking to him. Do you have any idea? And I'm like, no. He's just a guy that was up on the stage with me at the men's conference. I, I mean, that's nothing compared to the way that we are not aware of receiving Jesus Christ in Holy Communion. All right, I'm out of time. More on this tomorrow. God bless your day.